My name is Dr. Chris Jenkins, and I am the CEO of the Oriane Society and the host of the Snake Talk Podcast, the podcast where you learn about nature's most feared, maligned, and persecuted animals. I invite you to listen to this conversation, and maybe you'll find that what you perceive as fear is actually rooted in a deep fascination. Welcome to the Snake Talk Podcast. I am here with Caesar Rahman. Uh, I've known Caesar. We probably met over ten years ago now, and and worked together uh, a, a little bit uh, early on. And we're going to have a, a interesting conversation. Um, we're going to talk about a lot of different things, but one thing we're going to talk about is Burmese pythons. Um, and, and not where most of you think of Burmese pythons being in Florida. We're actually going to talk about them in their native range, talk about their ecology and some of the important work that that Caesar and his colleagues are doing uh, with that species. And we'll also talk uh, about some of the other interesting projects uh, that they have going on. So Caesar, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Hey, Chris. I'm good. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing very well. Well, let's let's start out and and learn a, a little bit about you. And so, uh, first of all, just tell us a little bit about kind of where you grew up and and how you ended up getting an interest in in uh, pythons and just reptiles and ecology more in general. Right. Um, so I grew up in Bangladesh. Like uh, I was, I grew up uh, until I was late teens, and then I moved to the states for my schooling, for my high school and college. Uh, so I moved to New York City when I was seventeen, and I lived there for about seven, eight years, and then uh, that's where I really started my um, about eleven years back, and that's how it all started. So, so Bangladesh is known as, you know, having one of the higher human population densities. So, uh, in growing up there, were you, did you live more in rural areas or, you know, were you in urban areas? How did that all lay out? Yeah. Uh, uh, my, my father used to work for the government. So, uh, when you were young, we used to move from, uh, different towns to different parts of Bangladesh because every two, three years he would post it in a, in a new, in a new town. And so the first seven or eight years of my life we would spend in, in mostly rural areas. And I spent a lot of time traveling around villages there. But when I was about nine years old, like I moved to the capital city, Dhaka. Uh, it's a very big city. It's a, it's a very crowded, very, uh, it's a high human population density there. And we didn't have uh, uh, much nature there. So I'd spend a lot of time indoors or playing sports. Uh, in the streets, yeah. So when you were in these rural areas, did you have the opportunity, I mean, did you already have kind of an interest that, in snakes and other reptiles? Is that part of, you know, the, the time you spent in the outdoors? Uh, is that something that kind of developed young in you, or is that something that, that developed later in life once you get to the States? 
Yeah, so uh, I was always into animal. Like when I was very, so every every opportunity I had, I would spend a lot of time with those uh, those uh, pets and domestic animals. And that's when I know that uh, you know my passion for animals. But I didn't really uh, know that I could pursue a career in wildlife conservation field until I moved to the states. But when I moved to the states, I was more thinking, but. I started volunteering in a, in a organized rock city, and that's where I really started uh, getting involved in the wildlife conservation sector. Gotcha. So you moved to New York City when you were in high school, is that right? Right, yeah. Uh, I was about 17 when I moved to the New York City and finished my high school and then uh, did my college in Brooklyn College. So you're you're in New York City and you're going to Brooklyn College and there's a you know a relatively accomplished uh, herpetologist there and so I'm curious is this where you began uh, you know kind of your interest in in reptiles? Uh, yeah. So basically, when I was finishing high school, I was volunteering in animal shelter, uh, uh, basically uh, dealing with uh, dogs and cats. So I spent a lot of time while I was finishing my high school. And that time I was more uh, thinking of going into a vet school. But I was also looking for opportunities in different fields. So I uh, contacted an NGO. Uh, it's a New York City-based NGO called Wild Metro. They primarily work on urban wildlife in New York City and the, and the tri-state. So I contacted David Berg and he kind of uh, I met him and we did my first uh, field work with like basically uh, uh, mammal trapping in the Central Park, and that's where I really liked that experience, and I really felt that okay, I would pursue this field, and I started volunteering with different people. Then, at some point, I met a herpetologist called Peter Warney. Uh, he does a lot of freelancing work, work and he uh, took me different places, and, and he uh, different places in around New York City, and that's where. Uh, I really started uh, getting involved with Reptile. And then at some point, I joined uh, Dr. Russell Burke, who is a professor at Hofstra University, and started volunteering and doing internship with his Diamondback Terrapin project in, in, in New York City. So that's basically uh, my first experience with Reptile research and conservation. Okay, so he's at Hofstra, and right. So, you, do, did you go to school at Hofstra, or were you at Brooklyn College and then volunteering with him? Yeah, I was in Brooklyn College. I I couldn't find any opportunity, particularly in reptiles, in Brooklyn College. But I worked with Dr. Schreibman in his lab very briefly. I was doing a little experiment in his lab, uh, 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 but yeah, I I'm not sure I kind of found anyone, any field herpetologist based in Brooklyn that time. Gotcha. And so on the Diamondback Terrapin uh, project, uh, what what would you guys be doing? Were you out doing field work? Were you working in the lab? What, how, what did that kind of look like? Oh, yeah, that, that was basically, uh, he has an ongoing uh, Diamondback Terrapin nesting ecology project uh, based in, in Jamaica Bay Wildlife Refuge in New York City. So uh, uh, every summer they would uh, work on the nesting ecology. So basically I would uh, help him and his team uh, collecting uh, nesting data. We'd go in the morning and we'd wait until the female comes back to nest. We'd capture the female, take measurement, doing pit tagging and uh, measuring the eggs and 
at the hatchling season, I would go and collect the hatchling and release it back. So yeah, that that would be the basic responsibility working there. Oh, okay, great. And so then as as you're kind of getting close to finishing, I think that's probably about when we met and, and started talking, but uh, you know, you had an interest in going back, you know, to where you grow up, uh, going back to Bangladesh and, uh, you know, from, from our discussions, it seemed like you had a particular interest in the pythons. And so before we start talking about the pythons, what, what prompted that? So you're in New York city, uh, you know, what made you feel this draw that you had to go back, um, to where you grew up is um, just curious. Was it something about the animals? Was it just that's home and, and you needed to be back there, but why Bangladesh? Why not just stay in the States and build your career here? Right. Uh, so at some point I also uh, volunteered doing an internship with uh, uh, Roland Clark. He, he works on rattlesnakes. He's a professor at San Diego state. Uh, so yeah, Rulon has been on the podcast. So right, yeah. So I uh, we I worked it a uh, couple of summer, two thousand nine and ten. And so he has a very he, he had a very interesting uh, project on on uh, gray on the ground squirrel and rattlesnake northern Pacific rattlesnakes uh, interaction the predator prey relationship. So we work in somewhere uh, near. Uh, San Francisco, I believe, in uh, Suno Wilderness, and uh, we spent about like uh, about uh, six six weeks each summer in 2010 and 2009 and 2010. So that's kind of a, uh, one of my uh, snake projects that I was involved in, and then really loved uh, working with snakes as well. I really found them interesting, and and especially the radio telemetry part that really finding or discovering the secret life of snakes that really fascinated me. And that point, I think uh, uh, I felt because of my family issues and and I really wanted to do something in Bangladesh and because uh, there is not much have been done on uh, wildlife in general and not definitely with snakes. And, and, and during those years, I started hearing a lot of conversation about the Burmese python in Florida. And then when I looked up online or asking people about the Burmese python in, in Bangladesh or native range, there wasn't any information available. So that really, you know, I started digging deeper, started talking to a lot of people in different conference, in conference. And that's how we met eventually. And then, so that's where I felt, okay, this is something I really like to do. Yeah. So let's talk about Burmese pythons a little bit in their native range. Again, as you mentioned, the Everglades and the, you know, where they're kind of an exotic invasive species. Uh, and that's probably where most people listening think of them, but let, let's first just kind of talk about their general ecology um, in their native range. So first of all, just how would you describe a Burmese python? How, how does it look? How big are they? Those types of things. Yeah, they're they're beautiful snakes, and and I would say they are very much generalist. And uh, reason I'm hopeful about uh, Burmese python 
surviving in, in a country like Bangladesh with a very high human population density. There are people uh, everywhere, even in protected areas, it's not really pristine because lo a lot of disturbance in most of the protected areas. But it's still hopeful about for Burmese python because they're very, very generalist and they can survive in, in different habitats. So, so how big do Burmese pythons get in the wild? Uh, so the largest uh, Burmese python I personally uh, captured in, in northeastern Bangladesh, uh, about 15 feet long. But I have heard of a uh, Burmese python uh, uh, that was 21 feet long, uh, that was in Sundarbans. So, and I would also hear a lot of stories from tribal people about 20 feet long or very giant Burmese pythons. But I think uh, like those giants are more rare these days. So typically we'd see snakes which are about eight to 12 feet and, 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 and some of them could okay. be 15 feet. And you, you called them generalists. So I was just thinking in terms of their habitat and, uh, you know, so, and you mentioned the, I'm, I'll probably pronounce it wrong, but the Sundabans, the, and that's a big wetland complex on the coast, if I remember right. Um, but but they also occur in other habitats, upland areas, and, and places like that. Is that correct? Right. So uh, uh, the Burmese pythons are found in, in Bangladesh throughout the country, but they're like basically uh, uh, two or three uh, like the hotspot area that where they're found uh, uh, mostly. So uh, the one area is like Sundarbans. It's it's in the southwest of Bangladesh and India. It's about 10,000 square kilometer of mangrove forest swamp. So there's that's an area. Uh, Burmese pythons are found in Sundarbans and outside adjacent to, to Sundarbans as well. And also in the southeast of Bangladesh, in, uh, which is bordering the northeast Indian states of Tripura and Mizoram and an and Arakan state of Myanmar. And that's uh, the Chittagong Hill tracks. It's a, it's a primarily a hilly terrain. Uh, so Burmese pythons are found there, and they also share habitat with reticulated python in the extreme southeast corner of Bangladesh. So that's a very, very interesting area as well. And also Burmese pythons are found in, in northeast of Bangladesh. So northeast of Bangladesh is basically, uh, it's a, it's basically a tea plantation and agriculture and forest mosaic landscape. So there are uh, uh, small patches of forest. Protected areas surrounded by tea plantations and human settlements throughout that area, and, and a lot of wetlands as well. It's kind of a basin. Uh, yeah, it's a complex, uh, different type of habitats there. So, uh, so that's also one hotspot for Burmese python as well. So, and and in other parts, they are occasionally found, uh, but this year, like the the main areas where Burmese pythons are found mostly. So, yeah, so we found them everywhere, like from mangrove forest to hill forest to like even uh, kind of uh, uh, tea plantation areas as well. Yeah, you mentioned when you were describing the tea plantations there, you mentioned kind of some interspersed wetlands. I didn't necessarily mention that when you were talking about the more hilly, more upland country, but is how do does Burmese python habitat in Bangladesh typically include some type of wetland component or or do they live can they live in kind of completely upland uh forest habitats 
Yeah, even even in the upland forest habitats, a lot of uh, water streams, so it's it's very much moist as well. So I think uh, 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 most of the time we'd find uh, the Burmese pythons close to water, and and we found that in our telemetry study that they would found that many of them were, would spend the winter in water uh, because uh, the water temperature would probably be a bit higher than the environment uh, ambient temperature. So uh, even in the upland, uh, there are a lot of streams. So I believe they would use that uh, uh, streams as well. Okay. So, so they're kind of a, a generalist, as you said. They, there are hot spots in Bangladesh, but I'm guessing historically they – you know, or prehistorically for, you know, long, long time ago, they would have kind of ranged across much of the country before, you know, a lot of the, um, you know, the human densities, uh, have gone up. And so they're generalists, they're using mangrove habitats, they're using agricultural landscapes, they're using, uh, more hilly country, you know, and all, all of that, you know, kind of interspersed with wetlands and there's some association there. Um, are they also a, a generalist when it comes to diet? Um, what, what do we know about what Burmese pythons of Bangladesh are eating? Yeah, so we have recorded a number of animals. So for the larger parts, uh, uh, we found uh, barking deer, uh, goats, uh, a lot of ducks, uh, ch uh, the domestic chickens, and we also found a few uh, wild birds like those uh, herons or egrets, and uh, and we found uh, occasional mammals like civet uh, and maybe jackals as well, and uh, and uh, a lot of small mammals like rats or squirrels, and uh, so yeah, uh, so I think they're also. Uh, having a kind of wide range of diet, but we believe that the pythons which are living close to the human habitat in the agricultural landscape, they're probably feeding on uh, ducks uh, and other uh, domestic animals, yeah. I just wanted to take a quick break and uh, tell you guys that snakes are one of the most persecuted groups of animals in the world. Unfortunately, most snakes that encounter people end up dead, but the Orient Society is dedicated to changing that. Go to www.orian.org to learn more and join the effort to stop the persecution. So they are kind of a, they have a generalist diet. They can survive on, you know, livestock of different types or they're eating mammals, birds, um, variety of things. So, uh, I know you've done, uh, as part of the work that we did together and, and, you know, you've been continuing that you've, you've studied how they use the landscapes. Uh, and so what do we know about, uh, you know, how these animals are moving, uh, across the landscape? You know, if you go to Florida, as I'm sure you're aware of these exotic uh, animals, I mean, they can move incredible distances, you know, they have, you know, probably the largest movements of any snake in North America. Um, do you see that type of movement in the native range in Bangladesh or, um, or, or do you see something different? Yeah. So I think, uh, the, the Florida, uh, 
a habitat it could be more similar to the habitat in the Sundarbans, which is a very a large patch of swamp or mangrove forest. But in the northeast, it's it's a small patches of forest surrounded by like tea plantation and like paddy fields and human settlements. We would uh, find uh, some movement, but it's probably not as long distance as uh, uh, in Florida. So I think with about 250 to 300 hectares, uh, that's probably the minimum home range for, for some of the pythons we radio trapped. And so what we found, which is very similar to the snakes in uh, the snake movement pattern in Florida. So in, 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 the, in the area that we were working in La Ochoa National Park in the Northeast, so the, the villagers would often uh, found uh, uh, snakes in, in, in their village, like the snakes would come uh, killing their ducks and chickens, ducks mostly, and, and they would call the forest department and when I was there, we, uh, they would call us and we'd rescue the snakes and we'd put them back. And so the forest department, they would release the python in, in, in the forest about, so they would translocate uh, the snake about uh, 10 kilometers and, and, and because the villagers don't want them to release the snakes there. So every time the snakes, they release the, uh, move the snakes from the village to the forest and the snakes would go back exactly to that, to the area where hmm. it was originally captured. So that's a very interesting that, uh, uh, like we, that really, sh uh, shows that we really need to rethink like the translocation for this problem animal and so yeah, that was a very interesting insight from a study. I think uh, that Burmese Python Florida had similar information as well. Yeah, so th they can move these long distances and you can put them incredible distances away and they'll come all the way back. Um, was there any like, did you see any like seasonality uh, to movement, meaning like at certain times of the year, um, I believe you kind of, the, the climate there is one, it's kind of like you have a monsoon or like a wet season or dry season and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but did you see differences in how these pythons were using habitats, say across different times of the year relative to climate, um, how that affected which habitats they were using, anything like that? Yeah. So, uh, from uh, about November to January, it's a, it's a winter season here. So the temperature, uh, the low temperature is about like, uh, even f gets low as 40 degree Fahrenheit as well. And then, uh, so typically about 50 to 70 degree Fahrenheit in the winter time. So from about, uh, November to, uh, January, uh, to about February, it's a, it's a very, it's a cooler. Uh, cooler months and we the snakes would barely move during that time and of course uh they we have found the highest movement rate in the in the monsoon so after the first rain and july august september are the months with a lot of rain and they would move a lot during the day and night and the winter and the winter uh we'd find them uh in the burrow mostly and some snakes would bask occasionally on the tree, but, uh, but Lawachar, the park where we're studying pythons, where it's also very, it's a high disturbance, a lot of people, a lot of tourism, tourists are there. So we'd not find pythons like basking open. Uh, I don't know how that's a learned behavior because to avoid the, uh, 
to because of the disturbance because you have seen pictures in india and other places in the winter time if you go in near the porcupine bar and you'd see like 10 12 pythons just like laying out basking but we've not see we've never seen that kind of uh uh in 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 bangladesh in that part but sometimes uh, like in, in, in certain tea plantation, they would have a lot of those pangolin and porcupine burrows and we would see them very close to the burrow. They're just uh, laying there. But yeah, but uh, so they're definitely not active in the winter months, but they're very, very active in the, in the monsoon season. Gotcha, in the monsoon. So the uh you mentioned pangolin burrows so they they use burrows quite a bit at different times of the year for for different things and it sounds like you know they're they're obviously not making their own burrows but they're using burrows created by their animals um i, I always another interesting thing about their ecology is kind of like their reproduction and the you know the production of young uh, talk a little bit about that. You know, when are they, these snakes breeding? Uh, you know, where are the females going? H how does that all play out with, with these pythons in the wild? Yeah, so the breeding season is uh, very, very similar uh, to, to that of Florida. Like it would be almost uh, within a week, they'll start laying eggs and the hatching come out. So about... Uh, by April, uh, I think from March, uh, we started seeing hatchlings, and uh, I would say uh, see them laying. And then about uh, we caught, get we got we get our uh, first uh, hatchling snakes about uh, June, end of June and July. So, uh, so the pangolin bar is very important because uh, that's where the uh, uh, most of the snakes we found winter spend the winter and we found one nest uh, we found an abundant nest in one of the pangolin burrows and i don't know what happened to the female snakes the villagers said uh, uh, you know they found the eggs there but could be the humans are disturbing the snakes or maybe they they took the snake out but we found those eggs in in that parcupine burrow uh in in may uh uh so just the early monsoon season but we uh we tracked a particular we tracked few females for almost two to two years but none of our snakes uh laid eggs so i don't know whether it's just the that's the pattern or it's anything to do with our uh radio telemetry or maybe we're just tracking them too much so we don't know that but uh so they would primarily uh lay eggs in in, in those burrows that's what we found Okay. And so, and so they lay the eggs in the spring. It sounds like you said you found that nest in May and that you, or sorry, you found hatchlings in May. I'm trying to remember uh, the timing there. It, we found that those are, those are abundant eggs in May. So probably it's hatch out. So not sure, but we found uh, hatchlings in uh, June and July. Okay. And that would time, are your monsoons also in that time period in the kind of right june july august may is kind of the pre-monsoon uh we get few rains but from june july and august it's is the peak of the monsoon okay so the female lays these eggs in the spring and then uh she stays with the eggs in the burrow is that correct right 
Okay. And, and that's primarily to guard them. Uh, you know, you hear with some pythons where they have these like behaviors where they kind of like, uh, you know, I don't know, shivering is probably the wrong term, but you know, they're say they're doing some form of vibration and actually almost incubating the eggs. I mean, it, does that happen in Burmese pythons or no? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, of course, I never got to see them uh, doing that be uh, behavior, but yeah, uh, uh, it's called the facultative, the endothermic behavior. But uh, uh, yeah, so uh, they would do that as well. That's that we know. Okay, and um, so when these hatchlings come out, how how big are they? And how well, let me back up. How many eggs, you know, what's kind of like a range of how many eggs, uh, you know, a female python would lay? And then, uh, you know, and then how big approximately are the hatchlings uh, when you start seeing them in that early monsoon season? Uh, so I uh, think we found about uh, 30, uh, uh, 30, 40 eggs, I think, uh, 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 we know of a nest about 80, 81 eggs in Sundarbans. That's a huge uh, python and in Sundarbans, about a very large 21 pythons. But I think uh, uh, most of the nest that we found uh, probably like about uh, 30, 40 eggs. And uh, uh, yeah, and the eggs are, uh, uh, it's, it's a pretty large egg. It's, uh, it's oval shape. Uh, about like 10, uh, 10 uh, 13 centimeters uh, length. And uh, uh, yeah, so it's, it's, those are big eggs and uh, uh, the, the, the female patterns would guard the nest in the burrow. Ah, okay, great. And, and so uh, how about the, the hatchling size when they hatch, you know, just approximately how big might a hatchling be? Uh, about uh, less than two feet, uh, I think okay. uh, about 60 centimeter, yeah. And I'm assuming at that life stage, they actually kind of have uh, a number of animals that would, that would feed on them. Do you, uh, do you, have you observed or do you know of like certain species uh, in that Bangladesh region that, that actually feed on young pythons? Uh, uh, sure. Uh, we haven't uh, really uh, documented uh, or have observed that behavior directly, but I think uh, we have found uh, the monitor lizards. They would a lot of snakes and uh, and a wild boar because a lot of this forest in Bangladesh they don't have this big large predator like leopard. So wild boar is very common. At, it's almost invasive in certain areas. So I think wild boar probably even could kill uh, small pythons as well. So I think they are definitely uh, eating the uh, the baby snakes as well. And uh, so there's an interesting uh, camera trap video I just came yesterday. So there's a picture, a video uh, of a barking deer eating a snake. And, and oh, really? uh, so, yeah, so I don't know, I'm not sure, like it's probably not python, but so, yeah, I think a lot, lot of mammals could occasionally do that as well. Uh, so 
I'm sure they have a lot of uh, predators out there for the baby snakes. And uh, this and the python seed found in June and in, in July. So not not sure how big were, were they, like when they just got out from the egg, but we assume that's the size that's the closest to when they hatched. Yeah. Okay. Well, last general question about pythons uh, in their native range, and then we'll move on to you know talking about your work and you know um, you know what you're currently doing there in Bangladesh. So uh, you mentioned a lot. You mentioned obviously these snakes are eating livestock. They live in agricultural landscapes in some places. You mentioned uh, you know government officials translocating snakes. So I'm just curious what the whole human python interaction is in Bangladesh. Um, how do people generally see them? Are they something that they kill on site? Are they just kind of like a nuisance, a pest? Are they something that's revered? Uh, you know. So, anyways, just kind of that whole human python interaction. What, what do people think about these pythons there? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's a. The, the different communities we see pythons different way. So let's talk about like Chittagong Hill tracks. It's in southeast of Bangladesh. Uh, it's 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 a hilly area, and and, and the culture uh, it's it's it more similar to the Southeast Asia Asian culture. There are different indigenous communities. So those people primarily uh, they're subsistence hunter. And uh, they do eat python, so it's a, it's a good protein source for them. So I think uh, so they would share the stories of uh, uh, they would have this cave, the bat caves, and and they would see pythons there, uh, Burmese pythons and also reticulated pythons, and they would uh, take out. And sometimes they said they would find a dozen of python in one cave. And I think uh, hunting in that region, uh, that chronic subsistence hunting for so many years. For decades, I think that definitely uh, putting a dent in the Burmese python population in there. So that's uh, that's definitely a conservation issue. But so yeah, for for that communities in that region, uh, uh, pythons are hunted, and they see that as a as as a food. Uh, in in Sundarbans, I would say the pythons are uh, relatively uh, more protected because it's large wetlands, and the communities don't don't hunt pythons. And it's it's they have fairly pro uh, protection from the government agencies as well. But in northeast of Bangladesh, uh, it's uh, it's uh, it's hunting. Uh, it's probably not that uh, it's a big issue because it's a better. There's a smaller protected forest, but it's also uh, relatively better enforcement from the government agencies as well. So the people uh, uh, when they find snakes or when they see snakes. Uh, they do kill snakes, but usually pythons are large snakes, so uh, a lot of times they don't have the courage or, uh, to really uh, kill pythons, so they do uh, call people. But I think uh, even uh, that persecution kind of decreasing as well because of what people do. Like I think a lot of those marching snake rescue groups are there and also the government agencies are more proactive in some certain areas so those communities when they find pythons i think uh it's more often they call uh the government people at the forest department and they come and rescue 
So I think uh, how we manage that human uh, Python conflict issue is, is, is a challenge, like whether we should release the Pythons right there or we translocate them to other area. So uh, that's, uh, it's a, it, we need to figure out the management protocol. That's, we are kind of working on, uh, on, the, on the results and the publication uh, for, for our telemetry study. But yeah, I think uh, it's an it's interesting landscape for uh, conservation of large snakes. Excellent. Well, let's transition and talk a little bit about, you know, the the work you've been doing over the years. And let's start kind of with, you know, at a course level and where you are now. So and then we'll kind of dive into different projects and things like that you've been working on. But so where is it that, that you currently live and what is it? Uh, you know, that you currently do uh, in conservation, just kind of that high level overview of, of, of how you're working on wildlife conservation uh, at this time. Right. So I'm based in, in, in capital city, Dhaka, which is in the central part of Bangladesh. Uh, so I, I funded, uh, so I started uh, this Burmese Python project. So that was the first uh, wildlife research conservation project in Bangladesh. That was in 2011. Uh, for a few years, we also did other other uh, herpetological survey and other work. So that's kind of how I started my conservation career in Bangladesh. So eventually, I, I co-founded a NGO called Creative Conservation Alliance, and primarily we work with local communities and the government agencies. And we work with different species, not just snakes. We also work uh, with turtles and tortoises are some of our focus. And we also work with pangolins and we worked uh, with uh, different species. Uh, so the, our, our main goal is to prevent extinction of some of those uh, globally threatened species in Bangladesh and, and eventually reintroduce or rewild them uh, or help uh, reestablish uh, their population. Yeah, great. And so is this kind of an organization of one? Is this, is this you and the work you're doing? Or do you have staff members, students, volunteers? Kind of how, how, does the, how does the organization function on the ground? And then I also, you know, also around partners, you know, how, how do you work, say, closely with the government or other entities in the region? Right. So it's a, it's a small NGO, but we're growing. So we have uh, I'm the, uh, the chief executive, and we have a total of 14 members right now. And we, have, we have a few people based in, in the capital, Taka, and then we have one project in, 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 in near the capital, which is a con we have a breeding facility for uh, turtles and tortoises. And we have uh, one site in, in the southeast of Bangladesh where we, in that site, we work primarily with the local communities. Uh, because those communities are, are the hunter and, and some of their agriculture practice are not very sustainable. So you're working with the communities to really reduce some of the uh, threats. And, and, and of course, uh, the Forest Department of Bangladesh, which is under the Ministry of Environment Forest, are the, uh, the, ma the major stakeholder for uh, wildlife and forest in Bangladesh. So, so they are uh, our primary partner. And of course, we have few partners internationally as well. And Turtle Survival Alliance, they do support us for our uh, turtle conservation projects. Excellent. So 
Let's let's talk a little bit about some of those projects. We've talked about pythons, but I'm actually interested in talking about the pangolins uh, briefly because uh, they strike me as uh, important. Kind of like down here in the southeastern United States, we have gopher tortoises. Um, you know, and they build these burrows that are just so important for hundreds of other wildlife species. And it strikes me that the pangolin, you know, creating the burrow that the python needs and, and maybe other animals. So just talk a little bit about what you guys are doing with, with pangolins, because it sounds like they're actually one of the important components of python conservation. Right. So uh, we found out about the pangolin when we were studying the Burmese python. So, uh, so when we first uh, found uh, uh, the first the nest, I was talking about the one python nest that I found in the tea plantation. So the lo local people would say those are porcupine, but later we figured out those are the pangolin burrow. So there are some differences uh, between the pangolin and the porcupine burrows. Uh, I think the uh, porcupine burrows have multiple entrains, uh, but the pangolin burrows have single entry point and uh, about could as long as 10 meters. And we found a lot of animals like Kutisan frogs. Uh, we found the elongated tortoises. That's another critical endangered species. And we'd find uh, uh, Burmese python very often in, in pangolin burrows. So that's a really, uh, yeah, we, we, we'd read all the studies about the gopher tortoises how it's helping the other species in in, in the south uh, in the southern part of the united states so that really got our interest about pang uh, pangolin because we realized if the pangolins are gone then the the pythons uh like don't have another micro important microhabitat for the wintering so so we didn't have uh, much information on pangolins in bangladesh uh, so we did the first ever studied and we published a paper uh, uh, basically, we uh, we kind of compile a lot of those. Uh, so uh, we used to know think that the tea species of pangolins in Bangladesh, uh, 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 the the liter the historical literature says the Indian pangolin are the species which are found in Bangladesh mostly. But we found out that we probably don't have Indian pangolins. Uh, we mostly have uh, one species which is Chinese pangolin, um, and is Pentadactyla. So that's found throughout the throughout. Uh, Bangladesh and uh, so we did the study basically we kind of uh, 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 employed the tribal the Moro tribal people because they they're highly skilled at finding pangolins because they would uh, uh, capture pangolins and sell uh, 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 for for the trade and those we kind of employed those people and uh, 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 and, and they become conservationists with us. We call them parabiologists. So they help us really find those pangolin burrows, and we, you know, we kind of learn so much from them. And so that's one of our uh, early studies on pangolin distribution in Bangladesh. Thank you for listening to Snake Talk. If you like what you've heard on this podcast, you can help us by subscribing and leaving us a five-star rating. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions, be sure to leave us a review. Oh, okay. And so are the you mentioned the, the pythons overwinter in the pangolin burrows, but they also lay their eggs there. Is that correct? I can't remember if you said that. Okay. 
Great. Okay. Interesting. Well, let's talk uh, a little bit about turtles because I think uh, as you know, most of our audience knows, I mean, turtles are, are the most endangered group of, of animals on the planet. Uh, you know, around 60% of the species are, are uh, listed as, you know, uh, endangered with extinction. And uh, I know you have, uh, you know, obviously multiple turtles in that region, uh, but you have one in particular that I believe is critically endangered uh, that, that you've been doing some work on. So talk a little bit about that species and, and some of the work you've been doing there. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, my uh, the primary interest when I moved to Bangladesh was uh, study snakes. And we did a lot of survey work, uh, like we kind of... Uh, documented about half a dozen uh, new snake species, which is uh, not recorded in Bangladesh before. So we had like multiple country record for snakes, but like we would spend a lot of time in the southeast of Bangladesh in the hill track. So my the initial objective was to survey for snakes or to describe new species. I started finding every village I would go at finding like a lot of like dead shells, the turtle shells and all those and I started giving this uh, tribal people uh, the camera, the basic uh, point-and-shoot cameras. And, 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 and I told them, okay, what, uh, take pictures of whatever animals you hunt. And they would send me all those pictures of hunted animals, like uh, you name it, from cats to bears, clouded leopard, turtles and tortoises, sun bear, pangolins, uh, almost 32 globally threatened species. In, in that region and that's what really stuck me like I really I wanted to uh, focus more on research and be, be, uh, work more on the academia but I realized uh, like I also didn't want to be just documenting extension so so I started evolving more from just a researcher to more as a conservationist and then I spent more time with the people and uh, to really figure out how we can save the species it's like these days, I mostly work with the people, the communities, uh, or the government agencies to figure out a sustainable solution for some of the species. And we kind of focusing more on the turtles. Of course, uh, uh, they are very, very endangered and no, nobody's doing any work on them. But turtles are also a realistic species uh, in, in Bangladesh context because uh, Bangladesh doesn't have a very large area, large, uh, huge tract of forest like Myanmar. Or, or Thailand, so we mostly have the smaller patches of forest surrounded by the communities. So uh, I think a smaller bodied species, which don't require a large patch of uh, pristine areas, are likely to have uh, conservation success. So one species in that particular area, we have about four critical endangered species, and one species which is called the Asian giant tortoise, Monira emis, which is uh, uh, found that Manuremis ferry is found in Northeast India, Bangladesh, and Myanmar and Thailand. And uh, they are critically endangered because of hunting, subsistence hunting, and, and of course, uh, overexploitation and destruction of the habitat. So that has been one of our species of fo uh, focus and have been doing conservation breeding, also started reintroduction as well. Of course, we work with few other species as well. So currently, we're working on five uh, critically endangered turtles and tortoise species in that region. Uh, so you're doing 
reintroductions or translocations, but you're, you've got this captive facility, as you mentioned. And so are you also dealing with the issue on the ground, meaning uh, the issue of, of people, you know, you know, killing these turtles to eat, you know, are you just, what I'm getting at is, are you just breeding turtles and putting them out and essentially feeding the humans there? Or are you also dealing with, (laughs) with that issue and and trying to lower the persecution on the tortoise or turtle? Right. Yeah. I think it's a, uh, it's an easy thing to do just uh, breeding them and releasing it, but without solving the problem, uh, it's, it's, I don't think uh, conservation, conservation breeding doesn't have much conservation value. So I think it has to take a holistic approach. That's what we are trying to do. So first thing, of course, uh, breeding part, which is relatively easy. Eventually you can start breeding turtles. But of course, the other challenge with the breeding facility is how you sustain uh, that funding for so long. And the other challenge, uh, the main challenge is like, how do you mitigate hunting and how do you mitigate threat? So what we believe it's a long-term process, but our approach is primarily, it's a very much uh, in partnership with the, uh, with the, the villagers because, uh, and then uh, what we do, uh, we form this conservation agreement, like, uh, like uh, we, like when you choose the sites and we started talking to, it's more, authentic conversation it's we try to uh not to have that colonial approach like we go there and tell them what to do i think that probably doesn't sustain long term so we kind of make them feel like we are helping them not just the turtles because a lot of the conservation groups they come being too pro-animal and then a lot of times uh the people don't like that you know even i love animals too but like and these people are surviving just to feed their family if we just focus too much on, on just the animal then i think it could go wrong so we really have to uh, see or understand the local people perspective and uh, make our allies so that's we do we go there and then we talk what we can do and then we kind of support them in different ways like we have few primary schools that told us like they they want better opportunity for their kids so we provide the schools and we kind of provide them different support. We had like medical camp. So it's not one size fits all. So you, whatever works in different areas. And then we have an agreement and we tell them, okay, uh, so when they see uh, these people are trying to help them and then uh, and, and they, they do uh, uh, kind of understand the importance of saving species as well. And the villages we were working, they agreed not to eat turtles and uh, uh, it's also relatively easier because they're not going there to tell them to stop hunting everything uh, because some animals are relatively found in found more common like barking deer or jungle fowl but turtles are tortoises are very very rare so we were able to un- make them understand uh, not to eat them and then we sign a conservation agreement and then and we have so i think uh, the one important factor is like having on site presence not just for like one or two years, but it's really important that we continue uh, that presence. So we ensure that presence uh, and monitoring by like hiring those local villagers. Uh, uh, some, of the, some of them were hunter and then we kind of employ those young people just to monitor them. We train them the basic science or doing the radio telemetry part. 
And then it's a, they become the ears and eyes uh, uh, for conservation and they, they send us all the information and they can also become uh, 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 the con conservation am ambassador and they can help change the mindset of the community as a whole. So yeah, it's a very slow process, but to answer your question, yeah, I would definitely uh, to take a holistic approach to work with the communities to mitigate the threats and at the same time conservation breeding is definitely uh, very necessary for a lot of the species. Yeah, that does. It sounds like a very uh, holistic, as you said, or, you know, a very, um, you know, just kind of addressing uh, a number of the deeds at once. And it sounds like a great approach and sounds like great things you're doing there. So what uh, what's the future of this nonprofit? I mean, do you have big plans? Are you, you know, is it kind of continue working on the projects that you're working on now? How, how, do, how do you see this? you know, NGO uh, as you move into the future? Yeah, so I think the biggest challenge uh, for conservation NGO in Bangladesh is the sustainability because the way uh, the conservation NGO works in, in Bangladesh is uh, mostly from uh, like this project, the donor-based funding, uh, like USAID, ZIZ, and a lot of those, uh, the government uh, agencies, the funding, they do fund for projects. So. A lot of these NGOs, they uh, get this fund and then let's say there's a particular organization giving funding for, let's say $10 million on Tiger and Sundarbans and they work on Tiger and then the project is gone and then move to a different species like maybe a vulture and then uh, and just to sustain. I think that uh, is probably uh, that way. It's very difficult to make an impact on the conservation. So. The way we see it's like we choose what we want to do and then we raise funds and we really need to ensure that we do some of this project for the next two or three deca decades. And in order to do that, really, so right now, really focusing on building the sustainability of the organization. And one way we kind of trying to engage uh, uh, the business, the corporate group. So, you know, the Bangladesh is also one of the, the largest uh, ready-made garments exporter in the world. And there are a lot of uh, people with money. So, and, and we really need to engage uh, those uh, business corporates and uh, kind of w uh, find a sustainable way for financing conservation. And of course, uh, so raising funds uh, within the, from within Bangladesh and also internationally as well. And I think uh, we're also planning to do a lot of those enterprise. Tourism could be one thing. So we don't have to depend on donation so that we have a sustainable uh, uh, revenue stream as well. So what we really think it's not just focusing on one uh, uh, one source of funding to diversify the uh, the, uh, the revenue sources. I think that probably the best way to really make the organization sustainable in the long run. Yeah. Great. Well, if anybody out there listening to this podcast, if they're interested in um, supporting the organization, um, you know, say financially, or, you know, if there are, you know, other opportunities, whatever those might be, how, how would they best, um, how would they best figure out how to do that? Uh, so uh, the biodiversity group is our fiscal sponsor. So you could uh, donate, uh, you can Google the biodiversity group. It's a US based NGO. They have a uh, 501 C3. Uh, and you can donate them and you can mention about uh, Bangladesh program. 
You can also donate directly to Turtle Survival Alliance. Uh, same, just uh, when you donate, just mention about Creative Conservation Alliance or Bangladesh program. And uh, so those two organizations have uh, 501c3 status. It's probably the best uh, way uh, to uh, donate for our organization. The money would go directly to okay. us. Great. And I'll put that links for that in the in the show notes. So people will be able to uh, to link to that. Well, great, Caesar. It's been good catching up with you. And I, I like to have all of my guests uh, before they leave. I like to have them tell me their best snake story. So do you have a good you have a good snake story for us? <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, uh, basically, uh, what we do uh, when we're uh, Burmese, uh, tracking uh, Burmese python in 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 Laocha National Park, so uh, a lot of times uh, we'd expect the snakes to be in, in the forest, but uh, uh, sometimes we'd found uh, them in, in in the in in the village and the places that where you would not uh, find you would not expect the snakes to be. So one day, uh, like you know, I was tracking them, and then I was not finding my snake, and then uh, and I stepped somewhere on uh, on well, on the bush, and then I just found the signal coming from right under my feet, and then like and then I realized the snake was right, like I was literally standing on the the Burmese python. The snake was hiding under the brush pile, and I was just top of the snake. And I immediately moved back, and then I didn't realize there was like a 13 feet long python, and there's no way I could tell. And it's it just in the village, uh, just outside the forest in, in, in the in the in the shrubby area. So that's I realized it's 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 like snakes living with the people, and and uh, so that's really kind of uh, kind of make me hopeful as well. It's really I think uh, it's possible. Uh, for snakes and the people to live harmony with nature. Uh, uh, for snakes, for the people to live harmony with the Burmese pythons, yes. Yeah, well, that's a great story and, and probably a great place to end this episode on a, a positive note. Um, really thankful that, that you came on today, Caesar, and shared some information about uh, this really amazing snake that most people just think of as an invasive species, um, but uh, it does, uh, you know, really is a beautiful, amazing animal in its native range. And, and also thank you for sharing some of the work that you're doing. And I hope um, people listening to this will go out there and support you. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Chris. It's, uh, it's great to talk to you and uh, sharing your experience. Uh, thank you for inviting me in your podcast. Yeah, great. And I just wanted to thank the audience and tell everybody to remember snakes are animals too. And it's a privilege to see one in the wild. <laughs>